Hi, everyone. This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project podcast. And as promised, I know it's delayed, but it's not denied, as they say in church. Um, The final and sixth installment of Courageous Conversations 2018, um, what does the Bible say about sexuality? So we're going to get in that talk today. Thank you for listening. Um, we thank you for for your generosity and support. And for those who aren't monthly supporters, please consider becoming a monthly par- financial partner with us. Um, you could go to jude3project.org. You could click on the donation tab and either donate by mail or donate online. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode on what does the Bible say about sexuality, a courageous conversation between four Old Testament scholars around sexuality, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Today's Courageous Conversation is sure to be a hot topic. Sexuality. What does the Bible say about sexuality? And we have four Old Testament scholars to help us to navigate this question. The first is Dr. Rodney Sattler. He is the professor of Bible at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. The second one is Dr. Will Gaffney. She is the professor of Hebrew Bible at the Bright Divinity School in Texas. The third one is Dr. Cleotha Robertson, who is the professor of Old Testament at the Nyack College in New York. And the fourth is Quiniquia Day, who is instructor for Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston. Uh, Raphael Warnock offers his thesis that the black church has a divided mind, and there probably may not uh, be a more divided or divisive subject than the one about sexuality. So the first question I want to ask each of you is, first of all, how do you define sexuality and what informs that definition? We'll start here. In this climate, uh, just a definition of, of sexuality is a, is a, messy, is a messy issue. Um, how I define it, based on my own training, is I, I go back to a biblical text. That's that's my guide for me. That's my training. You know, I could bring another definition to the text, but then that would not be uh, a Christocentric or text-centric definition. So with, for me, I start at Genesis 1 and 2, which I think informs all of the Old Testament, and I think it also informs the New Testament as, as well. So for me... When I'm, when I'm grappling with issues of, of sexuality, for me, that's where I go back. I go back and see how the text informs my uh, thinking about uh, sexuality. Also acknowledging as an African-American male, urban, uh, raised in a black Baptist church, I'm going to bring my, my presuppositions to that. And all of us, when we're looking at the text, bring our presuppositions to the text. But my, my genesis of trying to define sexuality um, has to be Genesis 1 and 2. But then I also have to acknowledge that because of uh, Genesis 3, we live in a fallen world that tries to redefine that. 
I think I would look at sexuality. Um, I definitely would start at Genesis 1 and 2, but I also would go straight to the heart of the matter. I look at it as our impulses, our desires, how it frames how we think about ourselves as sexual beings, how it frames how we talk about ourselves, how we sort of interact with others, and how that is expressed with other people, um, whether you identify with a particular gender or not, but how that is being expressed. I think I sort of look at all of that um, as sort of guiding um, sexuality. Boy, thank you for the easy question. Uh, I think in terms of sex, sexuality, I would begin again, uh, perhaps in Genesis 2, the latter part of that, where uh, the man leaves his father, mother, cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh, uh, as an introduction to a notion of sexuality, as a return to wholeness, uh, attempt to get back to the full Adam that was created at the beginning, uh, this bifurcated being coming back together again, that would be my interpretation of uh, the origins there. Uh, but if I were to think about sexuality, I'd say it's related to sex. Sex is a uh, wonderful opportunity for us to experience the fullness of life, life at its fullness. The orgasmic experience uh, is the fullness of life, if anybody's ever had sex. Uh, but uh, in addition to that experience, though, I'd say that sex also is the way that life reproduces itself. Uh, so sex is tied to life. It's a necessary component in that. Uh, but also, in terms of sexuality, I'd say that you can't talk about sexuality without talking about power. Because how we define sexuality often determines who is and who is not empowered in society. And if I can, uh, and uh, let me just say this, I always say this, uh, you can't have power defined in ways that give advantage to some without taking away power from others. So as we think about the creation of sexuality, we have to think about the way that we align power in larger society. So when Dr. Rhodes asked about how we define sexuality, I want to note that the original question uh, did not uh, put the biblical text on the table. Some of our colleagues uh, start there. So I want to remind us of the question I heard because my first response when you asked it before I heard my colleagues is that I understand sexuality to be the processes by which a human person lives fully in their body, that it is physical, it is emotional, it is spiritual, and the ways in which they relate intimately with another person. And because I'm a biologist, I think of the physicality of that, and for that reason, do not turn first to the biblical text. Um, we've had a lot of theology here, for me, God is larger than the Bible, and what I understand God to know is more than the persons who recorded the Bible. The persons who recorded the Bible did not know, for example, that there was such a thing as an ova. They believed in a homunculus. That is, they believed that every human person was contained in sperm. So when I'm looking for biological, to talk about sexuality biologically, Genesis is not going to be a source text for me, though it may be talking about it emotionally and spiritually. Thank you. And, and let's flag the bio biological piece uh, for a later part of this conversation. But for uh, Dr. Gaffney and Dr. Day, both of you are Hebrew Bible Old Testament scholars. 
And so all since all four, oh, all four of you, well, we'll. I'm sorry, New Testament faculty. The real Bible, the real Bible, and then work our way around. Uh, you did bring up Genesis one and two, also three, complicating uh, what happens in the creation narrative. Talk to us about whether or not there's a unitary biblical doctrine of sexuality, or is it much more complicated uh, based on your understanding both of the original language uh, and how the text has been received throughout, throughout the centuries? Seems like there's an elephant in the room and nobody wants to touch it. I'll touch the elephant. No, well, listen, I can. I just I, spoke. So I, I, would, I, would, I would argue this. I would argue based on the paradigm of Genesis 1 and 2, we're looking at a monogamous heterosexual relationship. And when I'm, as a pastor, dealing with the stuff that I have to deal with, most of us come to the, to the text and to the gospel, I say, post-Genesis chapter 3. And so then I bring my isms, my stuff that life has put on me, the abuses, the difficulty, and then I try to grapple with that in view of looking at Genesis 1 and 2, that at least from an exegetical point of view, that we're looking at something that's monogamous. We are looking at something that's heterosexual. We are looking at something that's wholesome. If we're exegeting, if we're exegeting the text, but realizing as well in a pluralistic society, people are going to define that differently. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big boy. I understand that. But if we're going to be honest to the text and grapple with that, I think that that's what the text says. Um, so I, I think, I think that we, um, we, we, we go to heterosexuality too fast. That, that's my, my opinion as someone that's in the church and a, as an ordained minister, and I see so many different things. I think that we ha- we're uncomfortable talking about sexuality independent of being in a relationship with someone. So if I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a single woman and I feel very, very confident and very sexual, very, you know, just sexy in myself, just that, that bothers, that's a bothersome conversation. And so I think that we moved, I think, a little too fast to heterosexuality. Not that I'm confused on where I stand with that at all, but I think there needs to be more dialogue about how we are sort of experiencing our own bodies because you can't really talk about um, heterosexuality, homosexuality, any of those things if we just can't have dialogue first about, I don't know, Sarah, when she uh, finds out that she's going to have a child again. Well, she's going to have a child first, right? So she... She is enthused by this idea of having a desire. Now, we don't talk about the desire. We talk about, oh, she's going to have a baby. But she's, she's thinking about the joy of sex. That's like a big thing. She's so, thinking about the wetness. That's the word. That you see, okay, you see, but we don't, we, not talk, we don't talk about that. We talk about the promised seed. And I think we sort of skip some of these pieces. And these are, these are important discussion points if we want to help our churches move forward. We need to be comfortable or get to a place where we're comfortable talking about that Sarah is looking forward to being intimate with her husband. So the, I understand that as, a, as our facilitator, you put uh, biology later, but I am going to put it back on simply because we cannot discuss sexuality apart from the human body, which is a biological organism. And 
Sexuality is related to gender. Uh, gender is complex, both the physiological features and what I'm going to call socio-psychological features, right? The biblical text, as, as uh, Brother Cleoth is, is my friend, so I'm calling him by his name because I know his first name more than I know his last name. Uh, you know, Cleotha is speaking on this, this very f first unit of Genesis, and absolutely that's how it's presented. But for me, that's a question of genre. What function is that serving in the literature? It's an ideological story. It's telling the story of the people, the ancestors, the larger family story. That story necessarily reflects the dominant culture, which was a heterosexist, heteronormative culture. That story doesn't account for all people. It doesn't account for intersex people, right? So the story is shaped in a particular way. Um, when we talk about how Genesis frames sexuality, you're absolutely right. Once you get beyond two and maybe three, things start to look different because then you get polygamy on the stage. Mm -hmm. So what happens with polygamy is human beings configure marriage in a social construct. But what is interesting to me about that is while there'll be discourse about that in the New Testament, um, that God never says what I created was this Eve-Adam pairing and that's supposed to be normative for you all. In fact, God participates in polygamy according to some texts, by rewarding patriarchs with wives and women. So at one level, that suggests that human beings can configure marriage. But on the other hand, when God says, here is how I want you to live before me, and God gives statutes from the Ten Commandments to the entirety of the Torah, God never rebukes or reforms that practice. Um, and I think that's something we have to contend with. And in fact, those of you who do New Testament and church history know that Polygamy wasn't uh, overruled really until the Romans said enough is enough because the church fathers were split, the rabbis were split, right? I would argue that it is, it is critiqued because we, we, look at, we look at the dysfunction of all of the patriarchal families. And so as a part of our free will, the Lord, with many of the choices we've made, mm -hmm. doesn't come down and say, don't go to the sugar shack club or don't right. don't 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 grab right. that. Yeah. Let me finish. Let I me didn't finish. say it wasn't critiqued because I did not say it was not critiqued. I said it was not. But I'm, but I'm, I'm arguing that that what we see in the patriarchal narratives, particularly when you look at when you go from 12 on to 50, we see families dysfunctional. We see uh, children trying to kill one another. And then out of that dysfunction, God still brings his purpose. And so I would argue that it is critique because we see, we see the negative decisions that they make and we see it play out on their lives. And we see a God who allows it, but then by his providence, you meant it for evil, but God means it for good, that he does bring a providential spin to it. So that I would argue that it's allowed but I, don't, I would not say then that that's a checkpoint that God gives those kinds of relations. I would, so, I would just say this before we go further. I think that we have to recognize the multivalent nature of the Bible itself, the Hebrew Bible in particular. Uh, it's not speaking with one voice, and that's the correct. thing I'd want to push back correct. against. It's not speaking with one voice. It's not setting up one ideal. Uh, and in as much as it does, it presents sex, sexuality, 
and marriage in different lights. Mm -hmm. And in part, I think that that's empowering because in our own contemporary context, it can enable us to imagine that God can use different things. I mean, you've got stories that talk about women utilizing their sexual power in order to perpetuate the lineage that are valorized. Stories like uh, uh, Tamar, the stories like uh, Ruth, where sexuality is used uh, quite overtly in the midst of the text in a way that would seem to run against our, dare I say, contemporary Christian Protestant paradigms. So I think the Bible is much more complex. If I can make this one term uh, part of this conversation today, I think we need to complexify our reading of the narrative instead of moving it to uh, uh, moving to imagine that it sort of says one thing or speaks with one voice. Yeah. Now, Rodney and I are friends, so we, and we push back on this at conferences. I would argue, I would argue that I think that there is a unified kind of construct of what marriage is, that I would, I would argue that one, two, and three are held up as a prism through which we look at marriage, both in the Old and New Testament, that that kind of out, sex outside of that sense of monogamy is held up negatively. Even, even the covenant is a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. We see it in the book of Hosea. We see it mentioned in the, in the book of Malachi, where there is a sense of, of monogamy and a sense of, if you will, exclusivity, whereby that's, that's the paradigm. And Israel, over and over again, in the prophetic books, are challenged because they violate that sense of, that sense of monogamous fidelity to Yahweh. So I would argue that we have it there, and that it's even put on a larger collective sense in God's relationship to Israel, and we see it all throughout the prophets. Let, let me interject quickly about... I would really love to respond to that. Oh, yes, ma'am, go ahead. So, you, you are absolutely correct about marriage as a metaphor framing the relationship of God and Israel and uh, the rage that ensues. In fact, God often functions as a battering husband uh, in, in, in response to Israel's infidelities, bringing on the enemies to beat, and sometimes sexualized language is used, as Dr. Weems has spelled out for us so clearly, in battered love. Uh, God does not tolerate others. I think we could all agree that that's the posture of the marital fidelity. But in the Israelite system, a married man could, could and did have sex with slaves, uh, could and did have sex with prostitutes, could and did have sex uh, with women who were neither uh, uh, under the control of a father who would be offended or married to someone else. So what sexuality looked like, what marriage looked like, and when we talk about God's participation, you have God and Moses telling the Israelites, when you go to battle and you see a woman among the enemy who you find attractive, you may take her for yourself, shave her head and cut her nails before you go into her. So you have the narrative saying that God is calling for abduction rape marriages. You have Moses saying in, in the Exodus journey, on the way to freedom, so we can imagine the people have left Egypt, they haven't gotten to the promised land. When a father sells his daughter into slavery, she shall not go free as a male shall. So sexuality is being constructed in the Bible in particular ways that simply uh, that are not being 
critiqued in the, in the text. These are being presented as normative. Uh, slave rape and impregnation is, is nation building. So while those early chapters of Genesis represent some ideals and the world is not in that place, there's not the sense uh, in my reading that um, these things are not normative uh, and so the, the biblical text is sustaining those practices and sometimes attributing them to God. Can I just um, interject, you know, um, that is a realized tension within the text, mm-hmm. understandably. But I think we also need to, if we look at that, we also need to take account of the moments when God shows up in a text sort of unexpectedly and, and sort of gives a law concerning the concubine in Exodus 21. It says, okay, if she's not getting her conjugal rights and if she's not being cared for, then she is free to go. And that is an amazing moment that, that she is. can leave this man and he has no claim to her. That is, that is just radical, Absolutely. right? And then you look at Tamar's situation and you look at Bathsheba's situation, those situations, God was very upset. You have the moment where it says that, you know, God is... Um, God was angry or God is, God is bothered. So, uh, yes, we do see these moments in the text where you're like, well, what is going on here in Israel? But then you see these, these also these bursts of moments where right. women are serving at the tent of the meeting and all sort of exactly. moments where, where God is uh, sort of standing up with a, with a great voice that this is happening, but this does not please me. Exactly. Rodney's multivalent. All of, all of that's there. So how then, for hermeneutical purposes, how do we work through, if, if there are these different conflicting or... Uh, texts that seem to conflict but are harmonious at the end, if I am to borrow from Dr. Edmondson's uh, statement on an earlier panel, in Sunday school, in my devotional time, just reading all these texts, how do I bring them all together to make sense of what God wants for me in my life as a response to reading what has been declared in the Word? I mean, I kind of hear two different hermeneutical approaches. One is, ultimately... Genesis 1 and 2 will frame the ultimate arc of the scripture. Over here I'm hearing, well, it's too messy and complicated, and so there's not really a one-size-fits-all. I'm in the pew. I'm confused. What, what do I need to do with this text that both agree, both sides agree, is difficult to read at first, first glance? I think um, one of the things we have to do is teach people, whether you believe that there are uh, multiple authors or whether you believe it's uh, an authorial tent, uh, historical grammatical method, is to hear what the text is saying. So you look at the characters, recognize what, the, what voices are you hearing from those characters. And I think, especially in the Judges 19 passage, we hear a lot by what is not spoken by the concubine. So I think that the way that we sort of teach or instruct people is to, at least for me, I'm, you know, I believe in, you know, the scriptural authority. Uh, I also would encourage people to look a little wider and not be constrained and be open to hearing dialogue that's not necessarily being preached, but to really look at the text and see what else is going on. If if I were looking at the text, one of the things I'd say is that uh, hopefully Sunday school classes will not just be us teaching at people, but hopefully Sunday school classes will be us empowering the hands of the people mm-hmm. to appropriate the text themselves. Hopefully we'll begin to work not just to tell people what the text says, but to give them the tools to be able to wrestle with the difficult things themselves. Uh, one of the things that might be difficult to do is to say, you've got to begin to make choices as you read as to what voice you're going to lift up from this text, uh, which, which paradigm seems to stand out. Why do you think God wrestles with 
uh, marriage in this way and comes down on this side in this text. So one of the things I hope that we'll be able to do is move beyond the traditional notion of Sunday school as us as conveyors of knowledge, the class as those receiving it, and become those who help to empower people to read and make determinations for themselves. And then uh, we can work together as community to try to find a voice that resonates with what we hear God speaking. So, yes, I hear that. I think that's a great point. On the other side of that, you've got, say, some of the things you're saying. If you're saying that across the pulpit or in the Sunday school class, and Big Mama's been in Bible study, Sunday school class for 30 years, what she's hearing something very radical, very new, that she may think is your attempt to shake her faith. Uh, you brought up the wetness part earlier about Sarah. I mean, that's also a... a, a translation language issue because most of us don't have translations with you know Sarah was excited to be wet again at least I don't know those uh, texts so even that it may not be so much an issue of top-down learning but without the benefit of the nuances of the languages we don't even we're missing the sexuality in certain texts because the language doesn't afford it the translation doesn't doesn't afford it so how do we do that if we're not Hebrew or Greek scholars? How do we get access to that if we've not been to seminary? Well, uh, there are all kinds of tools out there. And for some of us, our work is making that accessible. Um, that's what my most recent book, Womanist Midrash, does, is it works through issues of translation in an accessible language and helps people negotiate some of these. We'll be right back after this quick break. Wow. I, that, so how can someone, if they want to get involved with Jude 3 and support this amazing uh, event that you have and just everything that Jude 3 does, how can they get involved? Well, one of the major ways they can get involved is to donate. Mm -hmm. um, the Jude 3 project not only reaches, impacts churches, but we also have an HBCU tour where okay. we engage students on campuses around the topic of Christianity being the white man's religion, and we combat that Very false good. narrative. Yeah. And one of the things we do is we raise support to help fund um, the HBCU tour so that the schools won't have to, to pay for that. So one of the ways that people can support us mm -hmm. in reaching students is to give at jude3project.com, or they can mail in their gift, and there's an address at jude3project.com to mail in your gift if you want to do it that way as well. Awesome. Awesome. So now let's get back into the conversation. I think the first thing that we have to do is begin to say, this is something that's part of what we need to do and begin to open up the space where we can have these conversations. So it's not just uh, two different opinions. It's the ability to even say that this is something that Jesus might want us to talk about, that Jesus would be all right if we talked about, that Jesus says we need to talk about. Can I jump in here? I, you know, just to that point, I think that, especially with the tension with, with the homosexual uh, brother or sister who feels rejected or isolated, I think their, their concern is that they want the church to engage with this conversation. And I would, I would always, my, my thought is that the church is having its own problem talking about sexuality. And so I wonder if it's even the question. I think um, sometimes the, the society is moving a little faster than the church, and we, we can't even talk about sexuality, let alone homosexuality. So, so first of all, let's, if we can just do that piece and be honest, we can talk about, okay, that a lot of people have a lot of desires that are crossing a lot of boundaries. We watch all these 
TV shows that have all these homosexual images, and we talk about how much we love those shows from the pulpit, but then we denounce those very people who come to our church. And so I, I think that we, we need to really be honest with ourselves and say that, okay, we're not, I'm speaking from a very conservative viewpoint, that we're not where we need to be to sometimes engage with very difficult conversations. And I, I think that when we get to language, there's some, there's some other pieces that can be talked about as well. Yeah, I concur. I think the broader subject of sexuality is something that we need to deal with more honestly uh, in the church, right? Not just about homosexuality, but all kinds of sexual desire. I think going back to the piece about Raphael Warnock, the divided mind of the black church, for instance, around the issues of marriage, for instance, there are very clear camps and unfortunately, those camps aren't doing what we're doing in this conversation. Having dialogue, disagreement, uh, but without dehumanizing the other group for their stance, whether it's pro-traditional marriage or the belief that there are multiple forms of marriage, et cetera. So I'm thinking, for instance, back in my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, when these conversations come up, uh, a, you're right. Sometimes when you finally get the divergent groups in the room together, there are the crickets. But you can't even get them in the room because they've automatically tweeted enough about each other, about how evil that other group is, mm -hmm. that I can't really see yeah. you in person. I've subtweeted about you so bad, about how you are the spawn of Satan or, you know, you're you know, Donald Trump number two or whatever the issues are from other sides. And... In the messiness of all of that, it's hard for the church to say, let's come and reason together, especially when after we've reasoned together, we've got the same languages, <laughs> the same texts, mm -hmm. but we'll still end up at different conclusions on a host of things regarding sexuality. And it seems very difficult to find consensus or at least the sense, you know, we're going to disagree about this, but we can walk together or we're going to disagree about this. Mm -hmm and believe that your way is not only wrong, it is uh, dehumanizing to a population, or it is something that will lead you to damnation. I mean, that's, yeah. that seems to be the ultimate import. Right. Yeah. And when we're talking about biblical interpretation and translation for that matter, it matters who does it. So when we have a right. conversation, um, someone owns, owns the table, right? Someone set up this talk today and invited us to participate. Uh, sometimes when those conversations are had, the very framing of the conversation marginalizes and excludes. Mm -hmm. So I am gonna disagree with my sister here to say that we're going to, let's talk about sexuality. I agree with you that it's absolutely under discussed mm -hmm. in the church, but if we say, let's just talk about sexuality now, because we're not talking about it, but not talk about homosexuality, then what we have done is excised a, po a portion of God's children from the con conversation. And so then what sexuality becomes in that discussion by virtue of being framed that way is heterosexuality, which is not named. We've just said, we're just going to do sexuality, you know, plain sexuality, regular sexuality, normal sexuality, our sexuality. We will deal with them later. And so a lot of what we do is marginalizing. And so if we have everybody and every kind of body at the table, then the questions are not just 
how do we read this text? How do we understand this text? But what are the sources of our theology? And we need to have some people at the table in the room saying, I am a gay man and I am created in the image of God. Amen. Right? My body and my sexuality yeah. matter. They're valid. They're precious in the sight of God. But if a group of people who are heterosexual or are performing heterosexuality for various and sundry reasons um, don't have those voices at the table, mm -hmm. then we're, we're not doing the work that needs to be done. We're reinscribing a power hierarchy and removing people from the table. So I, let me just, I absolutely agree with that. I guess I'm still stuck at what is ultimately an impasse. You uh -huh. can, let's say, let's hypothetically say you have a wide circle with multiple persons represented, engaging all the various valences that come with that, mm -hmm. and we still leave. For instance, we may, after this great conversation we've had that I think Lisa's done a great job putting together, people will still leave with the same mind about the subject that they came in with. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It is okay, but I guess there's also the issue of it's not a kind of, oh, it's okay that we disagree. At the end of the day, there's, there's a fissure in God's family where there's not only disagreement, but, but um, ad hominem on, to mm. both sides. There's, I can't stand you, or all that stuff, stuff is there. And I think we can't run away from the, that element of how the dialogue breaks down. Can I, can I make a couple points on that one? Um, a, perhaps after this conversation, what we will say is that, oh, I love these brothers and sisters that have a different opinion. I may not agree with them, but I understand them a bit better. So maybe there's some, a new space that's created in that regard. Maybe this kind of conversation opens up the doors for potential change later on. Uh, and I don't want, uh, in some of these conversations, I don't want us to move towards a middle. I think a middle might be a bad place. Uh, but uh, maybe there's more space for us to continue this dialogue. So first thing I want to say on that. The second thing I want to say is really just more a statement uh, as we talk about things like homosexuality. I think we need to begin to wonder why it is that we talk about concerns like homosexuality the way that we do as the church or we refuse to do it. So for example, if I look at the Bible, uh, there are a few passages that we talk about in relationship to homosexuality. Genesis 19 is one. It's usually the dominant one. It defines the quote-unquote sin, sodomy, etc., etc. Look at the, the passage carefully. I will make an argument. A, it really isn't talking about homosexuality, and it's not really even talking about hospitality. It's talking about the way that you treat the poor, the disadvantaged, in a very significant way, uh, in a way that if we looked at it critically, might say there's something wrong with American society where we have incredibly wealthy people who refuse to do anything for those who are impoverished. It might critique us. So we find a way to interpret that text that looks at somebody else and calls them out for their quote-unquote sin. Uh, we look at passages like Leviticus uh, 18, Leviticus 20, uh, that wrestle with the notion of lying with a man as with a uh, woman is problematic. And we don't tend to realize that this is in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is a book that's written by a group of priests that were trying to define what, who was in and who was out of the faith, who was clean and who was unclean. And we forget the fact that we are the unclean, but we lift up this passage to talk about who else is this, uh, determined to be unclean in it, and we make this the principal text that we use to talk about their uncleanness without recognizing that this text would have excluded us as well at the beginning. 
As we go through these texts, we realize that there's probably a whole lot less about homosexuality in the Bible than we spend time talking about. So then we need to ask ourselves, why do we spend so much time worrying about homosexuality? Huh. One thing I might say is that uh, homosexuality and abortion, which tend to be the quote-unquote sins of the right, are two things that cisgendered, heterosexual, white men can't do. Therefore, they're the worst things that God hates in the world. <laughs> and if this is true, then maybe we need to problematize what's going on as we look at these things. Maybe we need to think about whose power is being represented by particular interpretations. And maybe we can begin to recognize that uh, perhaps we read certain texts the way we do because it's serving someone else's interests, not our own. I would just um, like to sort of interject there. I think one of, the, one of the issues that comes up with uh, why we spend so much, well, first, it doesn't, sure, we don't have a lot of passages on homosexuality, but I don't think that's cause to dismiss it as what, it, what, what Scripture says. I would think on uh, why we spend so much time on it in church, I think that we, are, we have misinterpreted the spirit of the text. It's not just, you know, if I'm speaking, I have a lot of homosexual friends, people who are in church, and people I know, some who are struggling with this, some who are, have decided that this is their path. I think the issue is a lot of times with church, when people come into church and they see them, whether they're transgender or whether they're cross-dressing, whatever, they make it the focus. And I remember just a short, short story. I remember my dad passed. My dad's Muslim. I remember he told me before he passed to not bury him as a Muslim, but to bury, I mean, not bury him as a Christian, but bury him as a Muslim. So we did but he allowed us to have a Christian memorial service, and I preached that. And it was a Muslim that came to me and said she was excited about this, the word because it was the first time she could be in church, and she heard the word, and it didn't make, we didn't make it about her. And I think what happens in a church, we make it about the homosexual rather than the redeeming work of Christ. And so I think in some ways, we have missed the whole point of, of Christ, which is to preach Christ crucified to all people and not to send everybody to hell because, you know, of their path. Speaking about, about redemption in Christ, uh, one of the other sort of, I think, elements in the room with, with regard to sexuality is the predatory nature of sexuality in, in our churches sometimes. And uh, that, we, that, that we don't talk a lot about sexuality in general. We also don't talk about assault and, and incest and all numbers of things. And so before we prepare to wrap up, I wanted to talk about, about that and also... Uh, how we deal with the issue of modesty and well, you know, who, quote unquote, who's at fault in these moments? You know, we often talk about the scantily clad woman and not the check on why the man is lusting and not resisting urges or whatnot. So I wanted to talk about that and how that relates to the broader conversation about biblical hermeneutics, theology, and what should the church be doing to address uh, the issues of sexual abuse broadly defined? So for me, this is an uh, example of why it matters that you have not just women, but womanist and feminist women in pulpits and in teaching spaces. Um, you framed your introduction as we don't, but we do. Some of us preach about rape and incest. When I tell the Sarah and Abraham story, I name their union as incestuous, right? Talk about David's rape of Bathsheba. She did not commit adultery. She was sinned against. 
when God started handing out punishments, God had no punishment for her because she had not transgressed, right? So some of us name those things, and we need to continue to do those things. Um, in, I am not from uh, the portion of the black church that was heavily invested in modesty culture. Um, so for me, I actually uh, take uh, this parable of Jesus when he says, uh, or this teaching of Jesus, if your eye offends you, pluck it out to be placing the onus on the person who is doing the looking. I'm not saying y'all should snatch your eyes out. What I am saying is that doesn't mean go put a modesty cloth on her. Uh, I, I think our Muslim brothers have this custody of the eyes. If you can't handle what you're seeing, lower your eyes. That, that's the same principle. It is, that's where the, where the onus is. But your greater point that people who are in pews are not hearing sermons about rape and incest and are not, uh, let alone in the structures of the church, creating systems of accountability to deal with uh, predatory members, that, that is absolutely correct in many cases. Anyone else? You can give me my claps. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things I've tried to do as a pastor is to make sure that I have some of my female pastor friends or my students come to preach because they would bring a different slant on a text than I would, I would as a man. Um, for a long time at the church, I was single. And so um, it could be a rough thing to be in a, in, a, in a church of color as a single man. Mm -hmm. And so I would challenge my members. I'd say, look, there's single guys here. There's single women here. Um, I can't institute a dress code. However, there has to be some sense of modesty. When we have dress down in the summer, I don't expect the men to come in and with, with body shirts on. And then I, I and then everybody started laughing. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And then I said, I don't expect my sisters to have spandex on, because I, I can tell you a lot of times I'm up there as pastor, and and sisters visiting would have shirts on, uh, dresses on their thigh, and so I'm trying to preach like this, or preach with my eyes closed. But the challenge is that we are sexual, and that it there is that 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 is a reality. But then as well. To, to challenge seasoned saints with some sense of modesty and respect for the place. I grew up in a traditional black Baptist church, Cornerstone Baptist Church in Bed-Stuy, with the hats and the dresses, and there was a certain kind of dress. Now, in this millennial generation, there just isn't that. But if somebody comes in the church, I can't make that an issue. But as well, there has to be some kind of sense of respect and decorum for the place. And so it's a, it's a kind of slippery slope that you have to tread with that as a, if you're in the church in a practical way. I would just add concerning what's going on with so much uh, sexual abuse and all those sorts of matters. I think we should really preach the text, right? The, this, the ham commits incest. You know, that's my interpretation when he, the, seeing his father's nakedness, you know. So I think that we need to... We really need to sort of talk about the very difficult things to talk about. And I think if we talk about those things, then we have a safe place to deal with them. 
and we can show people how they need to be at, how they need to interrelate with one another. Um, to act like these things are not happening is, is, is just a farce. We, it should not be that you come to church and that you're molested or raped by a, a leader or a minister or some or your Sunday school teacher. It should be the safest place that you're at. And so I think we need to have more, uh, more preaching on those things, but we, we simply are, you know, we don't do too much of it. Preaching but, also, preaching, but also making sure that you maybe partner with some of the kind of healthcare professionals who can deal with that stuff. Because many of us as, who have, as pastors, we don't have the kind of clinical training to deal with some of the hard issues that come across our desk. When I first got to the church, I was there late one Wednesday night, and so a couple walks in. And it was a couple that was going through a divorce. The woman walks in, and I could immediately on her wrist see that there's scar tissue. So she walks in, and I said, oh, Lord, she's tried to commit suicide. So here I am, a new pastor there, and I'm dealing with a couple that are dealing with divorce and suicide. The man was uh, having a menopausal issue and wanted to get some young gal and put away his wife of 20 years. And so they come, and they want me to fix it. In, in 15 minutes. And I said, let me be totally honest with you. This is beyond my pay grade. And there's no way I can quote Romans 10.9 and John 3.16 to deal with this. I'm going to meet with you a couple of times. And then I'm going to refer you. And so I, I work with a lot of uh, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists. And I'm always in the business of referring because I just can't sit down. I don't have to I don't have the patience to listen to somebody's problem for two and three hours. I, I, I want to throw a Bible at somebody. Yeah. And so I'm in the process of, of referring it, knowing Amen. that when somebody walks in, it's beyond me. But uh -huh. knowing if that's a need, I got to get them some kind of help. And they'll come to me because they trust me. Uh -huh. But then it's then my challenge then to walk them to the kind of person that they will trust. And I've done that a, a bevy of times. So uh, let me... Uh, this sort of this on the same basic theme. Uh, I think the text, even when it is most uh, most sexually whatever, uh, often has a sense of modesty. So, Song of Song, most of us would probably agree, is perhaps the most sexual book in the Bible. Amen. Uh, climbing people's grape clusters and squeezing different type of fruit. Uh, 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 so. One of the things that's sort of interesting about it, I was just looking at chapter 2, verse 7, uh, uh, and this is the NRSV translation, daughters of Jerusalem, uh, by the gazelles or the wild does, do not stir up or waken love until it's ready. There's a sense of discipline that seems to be found in a lot of these texts. Uh, and I think that we can lift up themes like that to say that uh, even though we may not agree what sexuality is or should be, we might find that there are consistent notions about whatever it is, because of love, because of other reasons, we should try to find ways to discipline the way that we engage. Uh, uh, sorry to say this, because uh, I think I'm put on the quote-unquote progressive side of this conversation, but I'm actually pretty sexually conservative. Uh, and in, actually, because I'm sexually conservative, that's the reason why, I know everybody's going to hate me now when I say this, that's the reason why I've been able to be... Uh, one who does not oppose gay marriage. Uh, in essence, if the rule about monogamy it makes sense for a man and a woman, then shouldn't it also make sense for gay men or gay women? Shouldn't people have the opportunity to engage in that kind of disciplined relationship as well? 
uh, if it's if we are lifting up a Christian paradigm, then maybe that Christian paradigm might have a different way of working as well. So now I've alienated everybody in the room. Forgive me for that. Me, uh, go ahead. And and I and Rodney and I have been friends over a decade, and so has Dr. Chi. And I think hopefully what we at least can model in this is the fact that we could disagree vehemently and still go have a cup of coffee afterwards. And so I'm hoping that, because I think this issue has ripped open other communities. And for communities of color, there are just too many issues that we have to address that as opposed to then mirror those communities and make this kind of a litmus test of whether we should work together. We can work together. We can work together and disagree on that. We can work on housing and disagree on this. We can work on reparations and disagree on, on this issue. And then we can have colloquiums like this and come back and, and have good conversation and talk about it again to at least model the, the spirit of Christ that has drawn us both to the text. Yeah. So I want to go back to what we can do in our churches. Uh, in black churches, it is very common that as we meet and welcome new members and get to know them, we, you know, uh, do you have children? Would you like to work in the Sunday school? What we do not do is fingerprint and background check. And predatory people know that about the black church, yes. right? Uh, they know that there are background checks in the Boy Scouts and in Big Brothers, Big Sisters, right? Uh, they know that child workers, everybody in the Episcopal Church has to go through this training regularly. Like, they, they migrate. And when I was in the AME Zion Church, uh, that was raised uh, by our bishops in some spaces that there were people go moving preferentially into black church and the kind of sometimes other... Uh, nationality evangelical churches that had sort of open door into the Sunday school policy. So that's something we really need to think about structurally and systemically. I would say at our church, Church of God denomination, we do background check and, and we, because we want to provide a safe sp space. Of course, sometimes a background check takes forever. Let's thank our panelists for their time and for their... Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show and it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching jute3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to jute3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.